0: mic drop markets spaces today this spaces is brought to you by mentor Q. discover how mentor Q is revolutionizing the way option traders trade and risk manage via alternate option data are you an options trader looking to get ahead of the market mentor Q is here to transform your trading experience with innovative alternative data and option trading models mentor Q solutions offers gamma and volatility volatility levels on stocks ETFs, futures and crypto, cutting edge predictive models for options trading and expert insights and analysis for informed decision making. They have a community of over 15,000 professional traders. You can find them at MentorQ.com or at their X account, MentorQ Pro. Um, I'll also put that up in the nest and you can use code SHY20 to receive a 20% discount on any plan. I use their data, it's great. Um, And then just as a reminder, before we begin, this material is presented solely for informational and entertainment purposes and is not to be construed as a recommendation, solicitation, or an offer to buy or sell, long or short, any securities, commodities, or related financial instruments. Please contact a licensed professional before making any investment or trading decisions with that, we'll introduce our guests. We'll start with Jim Garzan, who is the founder, CIO, and managing principal of CHI Volatility Advisors. He is responsible for pro- portfolio construction and firm-wide management, as well as its head of research and risk management. Jim formed CHI Volatility Advisors after over two decades of experience building industry-leading derivatives business at its peak. During the Great Financial Crisis, Mr. Carzon's proprietary market-making firm, Precision Capital Management, represented approximately 13% of the daily volume of S&P 500 options. And in 2010, Jim divested his stake in Precision in Precision Capital to found his own investment management firm, Now Kai Volatility Advisor. Now next, we have uh, Eric Balkunas, who is the senior ETF analyst at Bloomberg, where he has over a decade experience working on ETF data, designing new functions, and writing ETF research for the Bloomberg Terminal. He also writes articles, feature stories, and blog posts on ETFs for Bloomberg.com, and appears each week on Bloomberg TV and radio to discuss ETFs. He's also the author of The Bogle Effect, How John Bogle and Vanguard Turned Wall Street Inside Out and Saved Investors Trillions. Um, then last but not least, these guys are still on here, is Mike Green. Mike is the Chief Strategist at Simplify Asset Management. Mike joined Simplify in April 2021 after serving as Chief Strategist and Portfolio Manager for Logica Capital Advisors, LLC. And prior to that, Michael managed Macro... Strategies at Thiel Macro LLC, an investment firm that manages the personal capital of Peter Thiel. And prior to Thiel, Michael founded Ice Farm Capital, a discretionary global macro hedge fund seeded by the Soros Fund Management. From 2006 to 2014, Michael founded and managed the New York Office of Canyon Capital Advisors, a $23 billion multi-strategy hedge fund based in Los Angeles, California, where he established their global macro strategies and managing in excess of $5 billion of exposure across equity, credit, FX, commodity, and derivatives markets. And Eric is here. Yay. Um <laughs> So welcome, gentlemen. Hopefully we get Mike up here soon. But I will start with Eric, because I know that you have to cut out early. Um, So first, you know, I first we got to talk about the new Bitcoin ETFs, of course. Um, And we had just I think yesterday you posted that um, HODL, BTCW, and BITB all broke personal records. And HODL went with 200 80 million in volume, a 14% jump over its daily average. So what are you seeing here and how, you know, how is this affecting the underlying if any, and are there any dangers in this kind of mass rush into these ETFs?
1: Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me. Sorry I was a little bit late. Um, I was just in my annual review uh, with my boss. So <laughs> I had a good reason. Um, so All yeah, good. Uh, yeah. Um, look um obviously we have been obsessed with these and in my defense etfs only break into a new asset class like once a decade and this is a really unique asset class um and with a really you know sort of passionate underworld connected to it so and the the flows have been just really off the charts i mean even if you net out gbtc you're looking at about 5 billion um that's a lot you know if that were be one, one new launch 5 billion in a month and a half again would beat all the records uh so uh, just a big deal. Also, how far does this go? Do we really get deep into the advisor world? Does everybody's parents all of a sudden own a Bitcoin ETF? Is that, is that where we're going with this? Is it going to be a portfolio staple? Um, how much of these Bitcoin ETFs will get enough liquidity where you might find some institutions using them? When they get options, are people going to start trading them? Like, you know, probably. I think, you know, I see it a lot like GLD, IAU and those gold ETFs. I see like maybe a hundred billion dollar category. Uh, eventually. So yeah, it's, uh, it's something that we're starting to phase out a little bit. But every day, there just seems to be some kind of a data aberration that's just interesting to me. Um, but in terms of dangers, look, um, I think if you're a regular investor, I call a 60-40 type, I, you know, is there really much danger in allocating 1% to 2% to something that you might just have allocation to because, hey, I don't understand it, but I don't want to have FOMO in like two years, if it goes up a lot, um, I, I don't really see a problem with that. I've always said the portfolios have changed where people are generally low cost beta in the core, 60 40, you know, four basis points total cost, beautiful thing. But it's boring. You got to wait 30 years for the compounding to kind of kick in. And so people like to have a little fun. So I see the Bitcoin ETFs being used as hot sauce, similar to thematic ETFs or ARC or a, even a Robinhood account or something, a stock trading account. So uh, I have no problem with them. I, I sort of, that's how I see them. The crypto people, they're 100% in, and I would never recommend that. They um, don't want to hear anything about the 60-40 portfolio. They, don't, they think that's a scam. That's weird. That's a whole other story. But for the regular investors, uh, a small allocation, you know, again, I don't really see too big of a problem. Um, if if you, you have that little bit of a speculative itch and you know yourself and you'll get FOMO later, I, I, can see it, I can see them doing that. Whether it's a good for sharp ratio, some of the issuers are saying that, um, but obviously it's volatile. Gold, uh, Bitcoin makes gold look like a money market fund. So uh, expect a ro- roller coaster ride here. Um, but if people have all the serious stuff covered in a 60-40 and they know they've got NVIDIA and all the big, big name stocks and, st- and stuff in there, they're less likely to really have a problem with the volatility. So in a weird way, the sort of vanguardization of the core has allowed for more tolerance of the sort of volatile stuff that uh, you would allocate to. So I think the ETF Bitcoin ETF money will be stickier than people think. Um, So that's where I'm at with it. That's sort of where I see it going. But, um, you know, who knows? It could overwhelm or underwhelm my expectations.
0: Yeah. And I'm going to put up a chart here. You have, um, you posted on the 17th, so it was a little bit ago, but how, you know, the 10 Bitcoin ETFs netted like $2.3 billion. That was That's more than SPY, which is quite in- incredible. Um, so, you know, do you see any, you know, there's a lot of talk about, uh, you know, the government getting involved or some sort of hard fork with the bitcoin with the underlying on all these etfs um do you see uh, you know any problems with that
1: uh no i i will um etfs deal with uh, stock splits all kinds of corporate actions i don't think it'd be any different than that um etfs again the reason i dedicate my whole career to them um is that they are durable um you can put pretty much anything in them And because of the power of arbitrage and the market makers that are the best in the world in the U.S., um, you're going to have a pretty good deal. Um, That's why they are sweeping the nation. (laughs) People aren't dumb. You know, we're a consumer culture and uh, ETFs seem to get repeat customers over and over. Um, So I, I don't really worry about that. The government confiscating Bitcoin, certainly some of the hardcore crypto people have been like, hey, you know, FDR confiscated gold. And if they confiscate bitcoin of course blackrock would be happy to hand it over because they're part of the government yada yada in that case if you are worried about the government taking bitcoin uh you should just hold it yourself i would not use the etf um that's very you know i, I think that that would put you on a different kind of investment path for bitcoin there, there's definitely the sort of like mad max post-apocalyptic society's gonna melt down and bitcoin will be the global currency people who should do a, their own wallet. Then there's the more casual people who just want a little exposure. I don't really feel like going through all the stuff of getting my own Bitcoin. I'm happy to outsource it. I'll just buy a little of the ETF. So I think each crowd should, should try to find out where they fit. And if you do think that it'll get confiscated at some point, uh, definitely, I would not, I would probably not use the ETF. You'll just worry yourself. Uh, you should definitely invest in it directly.
0: And then moving on kind of kind of, in a broader perspective of the ETF markets, well, one um, kind of with the proliferation of thematic ETFs, focusing on, you know, specific sectors or trends, you know, how can investors assess the potential risks and rewards of investing in sort of these specialized funds? You know, what I'm talking about, you know, like the arcs and, and whatnot.
1: Yeah, so a lot of people dump on ARK and Kathy Wood who are, quote, serious CFA types, and I get it. It doesn't seem like the research has a lot of foundation. Where's the uh, focus on fundamentals and valuations? And this could be said for all thematic investing, to be honest with you. There's not a ton of academic support, but there's a ton of practicality. So what they see as a bug, I see as a feature. Again, if you acknowledge that the days of, investing in like the five-star manager who seems to have some great vision of the market and but largely owns the s p 500 minus some a couple bets like low tracking error and charges one percent that person that fund has been replaced by vanguard because you can now get beta for free so most people are like you know i'll just lock in beta which over time will beat all those active managers so as the core goes cheap beta which it is we can tell from the flows That actually is going to benefit people who are a little out there. Uh, that's why you see a lot of the innovative products are, uh, thematic ETFs, even single stock ETFs, which is literally an oxymoron, but they've got like a couple billion already. Um, leverage ETFs are doing pretty well. So again, I I call that the hot sauce lane and I feel like it's a viable category. It's something to keep yourself occupied while the 60, 40 grows. And if it, if that hot sauce, uh, kind of occupies your attention. And keeps, your, and keeps your hands off the 60-40 so it can compound over 30 years. I'd say it's served a behavioral purpose. So I'm fine with all that stuff in that context. But if you said to me, I'm going to sell my S&P 500 index fund and buy ARC or a thematic ETF, I would say that's crazy. I would say, just look at this stuff as like seasoning on a, on a meal.
0: And are you seeing any difference, um, you know, over the course of your career in sort of these these passive ETFs and and flows into kind of these, again, more passive ETFs where, you know, people just keep investing, um, you know, just because of their 401ks?
1: Certainly. And this is a big topic with Mike. Um, There's... uh, Look, uh, you know, I just wrote the book on Jack Bogle. He won the argument, but he won it by introducing a product that took a lot of years to get the fees down. But when you have a sub-10 basis points or even sub-5 basis point index fund or ETF that gives you exposure to the best American companies or even global companies, um, it's, it's hard to not buy that. It's just too good of a deal. And so a lot of the flows went there. However, the pendulum may start to, Stop and may even swing back a little as Active gets cheaper. So, we've seen this move from DFA, Avantis, some Quant uh, investors, and also JP Morgan Capital Group. They're getting cheap. They've gotten below the all important 40 basis point threshold. And so, I think Active is starting to have a little bit of a comeback. It hasn't come back enough to sort of push the pendulum of passive back, but it will eventually. And that speaks to the bigger issue, which is the whole index fund revolution really wasn't about indexing because these indexes are all designed differently. Russell 1000 is different than the S&P, the total market is different than the S&P, etc. It's really just about low cost. People really kind of locked into the importance of fees and uh, over time, uh, you know, 1% of fees can confiscate like half of your gains over 30, 40 years. Uh, the numbers get crazy the longer you go out. So. Again, I I don't blame anybody for going into passive, and some of the biggest worriers on passive, if I had a chance to look in their personal account, guarantee it's full of low-cost index funds. We had a guy from Europe who wrote a story on this, thought passive companies were like uh, cartels. Um, At the end of the podcast, we're like, well, what do you hold? And he's like, I hold Vanguard index funds. And I'm like, (laughs) that's okay. So look, it's just the way it is right now. I don't worry about it. I also look at, I'm a good, I, I like an eye test. The stock has a bad earnings. Does it decline and get beaten up by active players? Uh, it does. Um, we see, you know, Tesla is a good example recently. Um, and NVIDIA came out of nowhere to become a high weighting because it had some good stuff going on. And so active still driving the car, uh, passive, a big player, though, definitely has an impact. So uh, that's sort of where my mind is on this. But if we look at the flows, again, there's a little bit of good news because active is uh, sort of making – a real concerted push to fight that pendulum. So I'm gonna, Tracy,
2: I'm gonna hop in here real quick. I wanna, yeah. I wanna add something to this. I, I, first of all, I respect Eric tremendously, think highly of him, but I'm gonna strongly disagree. Um, I think this is, you know, what he says is the party line, right? Um, everybody is, uh, well, why wouldn't you invest low cost, do beta? Um, the reason you don't is because if people have confused causality Um, with reality, you know, like the, the, we've had 40 years until two, you know, until two years ago of secular decline in interest rates. It's almost a straight line. If you just look at interest rates on a graph, you could draw a straight line down uh, since 1982. And that has caused a massive push for beta, right? And not just that, the Fed being able to be in control throughout the process and the Fed put, has created a buy the dip, you know, reaction within markets uh, naturally. Um, that has drove you know multiple expansion, margin expansion, globalization, all of the things that we now take for granted. Forty years is a long time. Nobody looks past 40 years. But if you took a look at the last time interest rates went up, just the last time they went up secularly right, which was 68 to 82, the period exactly before the last 40 year period, which is much more in line with what I believe we're beginning to see here. We're in a a bit of a regime change. We can talk about why, why I believe that will continue. But if you believe that's the case and you need to go look at that data set and what happened to equities over that 14 year period, over that 14 year period where interest rates increased, you saw nominally markets go nowhere, but much over 14 years, but much more importantly, over those 14 years in real terms, you lost 80, 70% of your value, market value in 14 years. You can talk about compounding over 40 years or 50 years if you want. But for most people, 40 years is not what matters. People are not going to hold on for 40 years. Um, again, if you Lost 70% of your value over that 14-year period. Not only did you miss out on compounding, but you you're you're in the poorhouse, right? And I think everybody has forgotten that lesson. Everybody is confusing this passive revolution and this this looking at indexes and saying, Well, indexes, indexing has been a revolution. That's we, we knew about indexing 150 years ago. Indexing is not a new thing. The reason. People didn't do indexing and passive investing in the 60s and 70s because it didn't work. It didn't work. That was when derivatives got created. That's when hedge funds uh, began to perform. That's when value, that's the last time value outperformed growth. That's when active management worked. When you enter regime change, when interest rates go higher, it is not about beta. It is about the economy and actually discounted cash flows. Who has the money to survive? And so I believe that passive investing is on the cusp of actually a period, which is decade to two decades, I would say at a minimum, where it's going to see significant outflows and where the value of active investing that has been basically irrelevant. Everybody points to the last 40 years and says, why would you ever invest in an active investor? Just buy the passive index and go low cost. The co- extra cost of having somebody who knows and understands how to actively invest is actually going to ha- see a resurgence again in the next 10
1: 20 years that's my opinion Eric
0: did you want to respond to that
1: yeah a couple things I I, I get what you're saying I, I think it's hard not to look at the US market and the large caps as being like at like at some sort of tippy top how long I mean is there really much room for expansion I sort of get that my issue with that is it, you know, people have been saying that for 10 years and you have to market time and I know I'm not good at it. So that's one issue. The other thing you mentioned that I would just push back on is, yes, we knew about indexing, but we didn't know that a product could be out in the marketplace that charged nothing, basically.
0: That is
1: different. Um, and that is a powerful thing. And so in the end, when you're at your point on active, I kind of agree with, I think we're both agreeing active will have a comeback. I just think active will have a comeback as it beta adjusts its fees and only charges for the active. Um, I think naturally there is some desire to have that. The other thing you're missing is the smart beta quant category. Smart beta is a quarter of ETF assets. And these are indexes that are designed to tilt towards value or fundamentals. And they clean up. I mean, they, take, they took in 160 billion or you know, about 25% of the flows last year. They don't get talked about much because they're kind of old news. But that, in my opinion, is active. It's just using the concept of an index. Um, But I I don't totally disagree with your point that the U.S. feels frothy. And should we have a regime change? I just know I I have been hearing that for uh, a while. And in the 2022, rates were going up and the market still rallied. Those large cap stocks managed to come back roaring in 2022, even with higher rates. So they, they kind of, if they had gone down that year, I think we might be on our way to a regime change where value, small caps, international. But it just seems like those areas had like a little chance. They had like six months, but then like the queues and those stocks just came roaring back. And again, that is active making decisions there because the whole while passive is taking in money, the S&P 500 is taking in money. Active decided that the Qs and those stocks were better. And so that's why they came back. So at some point you'll probably be right, but I know I can't, uh, it's like waiting for Godot. Um, so anyway, I, I'll, I'll leave it there. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm sorry. I'm
0: sorry, go but ahead. Eric. Look, I
1: thought you were about um, at about eleven thirty-two, thirty-three, 33, I have to hop off. It won't be because I, um, you know, Cam said something that I didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> I like this debate. I feel like I wish I had an hour, but yeah. um, I do have to go to to uh, something in about eight minutes. But I'll turn it back over to Cam for the uh, for any rebuttal he has.
2: Yeah. So, so yeah. Just real quick, completely agree uh, that that active will take the form of a you know a packet more and more as we're seeing packaged ETFs. Um, and to, to now that Mike's popped on here, you know, to Mike's point uh, that he always talks about, like th- this is not going to end overnight, right? There is a ongoing machine that is reflexively forcing more and more investment into passive. Changing that uh, will take years uh, and underperformance. Um, so, uh, so you know, I think, I think those are all very valid points and an active won't look like it, it did, you know, 50 years ago, right? A lot has changed technologically, and educationally, and, and, and in terms of all kinds of other things, so we we agree on that it will be a different thing. I'm I'm simply mentioning broad indexing of, of the market uh, versus kind of active uh, management performance. Um, on top of that, I think um, I think it's important to note that that I that this is if you look at the last two years, you can take a small you know chunk of it, but since interest rates have started going higher, market by all. You know, broad metrics has gone nowhere. Um, and inflation adjusted your you're 15% underwater. That's pretty much what 68 to 82 looked like, right? Uh, nominally, we can we live in a world of nominal illusion, right? Nominally, uh, the market went nowhere. It rallied 80%, it dropped 40%, 50%. It did this many times throughout the course of a 14 year period, which nominally felt like, oh, it's not so bad. We didn't. Can go anywhere, you look back, you know, 70 percent losses on your portfolio in real terms. That's how uh, these things tend to work, uh, because it's uh, policymakers and the Fed, you know, the Fed is incentivized to make it such. Um, and uh, so to the extent that that we are in a period of, uh, you know, broad deglobalization, uh, populism, increasing uh, costs and inputs, uh, margins should decline from a record. Um, you should also you know, begin to see higher input costs um, and lower multiples as a function of higher interest rates, which serve as an alternative to markets.
3: Yeah, I, yeah sorry. I apologize, guys. I got caught on another call that I couldn't get off of. Um, and uh, I, I, I really wish, unfortunately, I'd been part of this conversation. It sounds like a much more interesting one. Um, I mean, I I think part of what's so fascinating about what's happened is that we're even having this conversation. Because when Eric and I started talking about this five years ago, I started talking about it eight years ago, nobody really wanted to even acknowledge that there was distortion occurring. Now, I think almost everybody accepts that there's some form of distortion occurring, it becomes a question of what's the magnitude and what's the relative importance. And Eric said something I think that's actually one, unfortunately, easily disproven, Um, And two, I think the current narrative, right, which is this idea that if active managers were to just cut their fees to the point that they're able to, um, you know, effectively only do a beta adjusted payout, that everything would be fine for active managers. One, that doesn't solve the underperformance dynamic. And so there's no way you're actually going to get people to decide to put money into active managers if they're underperforming and just charging less. The underperformance is a byproduct of the growth of passive, not um, a Grossman-Stiglitz-type framework that assumes the growth of passive ultimately creates greater opportunities. We actually know that's empirically untrue at this stage, um, and in part, it's tied to the same underlying assumptions that governed the academic papers that were written in the 1970s and 80s, around how markets behave. Grossman Stiglitz importantly assumes effectively the wisdom of the crowds, right? That's what the efficient market hypothesis is all about. For wisdom of the crowds to work, you need to have everybody get basically the same vote. So like, remember the game of guessing how many jars are in the jelly bean jar, right? Everybody gets to place a bet. Everybody gets to place a guess. You're going to have some people who are wildly off to the left. Some people who are wildly off to the right. You're going to have nerds like I who sit there and calculate the diameter. And we try to figure out the size of a jelly bean. And we try to come as close as we possibly can. But inevitably, we'll be wrong individually. But collectively, because we've all had a chance to play the game, we'll come to something that looks pretty close to right. The wisdom of the crowds requires what's called equal endowment. Everybody gets one vote or something very close to it. What we currently have is a situation in which we're asking for the wisdom of the crowd, but 1,000 people get one vote and one player gets 10,000 votes. And that actually can't work. You don't end up with the same thing. You end up with remarkably more distortion than you think you are. And when you start talking about the retirement systems of the American public and the fact that we're now dependent upon the market for the outcomes associated with it, that's a degree of risk that I think far outweighs anything resembling three to 50 basis points.
2: Yeah, I, 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 sorry,
0: go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, I know that Eric has to jump off here in a minute, I didn't know how he wanted uh, something to say before he had to go. Or not, um, go, um, go
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I have like one minute. I, I, Um, Mike makes some good points, Um, there's no doubt. Uh, I feel as though there's going to be distortions in the marketplace at all times. You know, there there were people who were complaining about the retail investor who had access to all of the uh, uh, brokerage accounts. Like, so the retail trader was uh, an issue, a a distortion at one point, then the options market was a distortion. The Fed has been one giant distortion. So distortions in the market are uh i would argue uh, part of the natural uh evolution of the market the other idea of the low cost thing i would just i would rebut that a little i do agree manager skill is important but you know that the lower the fee is the closer to the starting line you get and especially over longer period of time, uh typically and the studies have shown that the lower fee managers tend to have the higher beat rates over five, 10, 20 years And also just a bunch of active managers looking at the jelly bean jar, you know, they all have biases. Some of them were hugging their benchmarks before indexing was even a thing. And so it's not like they're all perfectly judging everything uh, as well. So I I hear you, though. I I don't want to discount all this. I just want to throw out some rebuttals. But um, I agree with Mike. There's nothing bad about publicly debating this stuff and trying to, you know, make points and let people decide for themselves how, you know, how they feel on this topic. Uh, it's going to keep coming up because passive's growing. So um, I will continue to try to keep an open mind with, with what Mike says and, and Cam and stuff. So with and, that, and just very quickly, Eric, I know you're going to hop off, but I do want to leave you with this.
3: I actually totally agree with you. If we were making an informed judgment and discussion around these dynamics, that would be fantastic but that's not the case we have an opt-in 401k system in which companies are defaulting for liability protection into low-cost index and target date funds that means it's not at all a considered decision in fact something like 85% of all employees never make a single change to the allocation in their 401k so i just like your your point if it were true yeah, would be 100% spot on but it's not and
1: th- this brings up one of your bigger points which is almost bigger than this whole issue which is should the stock market be Americans, uh, America's, you know, retirement savings account, basically, which is a whole nother can of worms? But on, on the 401k thing, part of it was there was some real highway robbery going on between the plan providers and using certain share classes. I mean, we're talking like a lot of fees were being ripped out of employees, so a lot of them got sued, and that moved them more to uh, the lower cost stuff. So it's not like active didn't kind of create this a little bit uh, in a way also. It wasn't they're not it's not like they're victims here. I think that's important point too.
3: Yeah, just just to be clear on that though, the lawsuits are actually not about the fees that were being robbed. That's always been covered. If there's evidence of uh, corruption or taking advantage of employees in that context, being in passive vehicles doesn't and low-cost vehicles doesn't protect you. That's not the cottage industry that has emerged, the cottage industry that has emerged. States that the level of fees and potentially underperformance is actually the source of the fiduciary liability. So it's not at all what you're talking about. Like the industry that. Yeah, but it is. A, no, but it's not. I
1: can send just. It is. This, this guy, uh, Jerry Schlichter, um, he had, he had uh, he's a nice track record of going out. I covered him, I interviewed him for my book. Um, he kind of started the ball rolling on these, some of these Fortune 500 companies. The record keeper is, uh, gets like a kickback, um, and so does the company. Again, again, there were a lot of people with their hands in the 401k cookie jar.
3: Right, but um, that's not the source of the that, – that, that was part of the That's impetus. different than
1: what you're saying, which is should the plan now say, well, you have to be in low-cost index funds for us to be fiduciary? I agree that's, that should be a debatable topic. But it's not. Is that, that, it's not, right? right? That's actually part but of the I'm problem. I'm with you there. I'm just saying that – Part of the 401k issue was a little bit of a mis, I'll call it mismanagement uh, over the years where employees got shafted a little.
3: Yeah, and by the way, Eric, like I just wanna emphasize, I completely agree with you. I'm not at the least bit shocked that there's gambling in a casino or that individual investors are being taken advantage of by professional sharks. I'm not defending that in any way, shape, or form. And I actually would accede to some of the points that you would make, although I think it's much more complex than simply low fees. And actually, again, the academic literature is exploding in this area. Um, part of the dynamic that you talk about with low fees and the outperformance or the relative outperformance is just people with low fees tend to hug the benchmarks. If the benchmarks outperform, hey, guess what? They outperform the other players, right? So it's a it, you're mixing the cause and effect dynamics. Um,
1: okay, listen, fair enough, Mike. Cam, um, we, hopefully there'll be a part two of this. Um, we'll be a part my, my show this. got moved Let's up to honest, noon, yeah. so I've got to go. All right, Eric, yeah, great I'm, talking I'm, to you. Good seeing you live. All right, time. and thank you for inviting me, Tracy. Bye-bye.
0: Absolutely.
3: And I actually oh. do want to make a point of Eric hopping off there, just for those listening. Like, we all know each other. We're all friends. These are active debates. Nobody hates each other, et cetera. Well, Chem and I hate each other, but uh, that's a joke. <laughs> um, but, like, you know, I think Eric is actually fantastic. I think the work that he and his team at Bloomberg are doing are absolutely fantastic, and I actually think he represents an important counterpoint to some of the points that I raise, even if I think he's wrong.
2: Absolutely. So, real, so real, real quick, I, I do want to, uh, I think, bring up an interesting kind of uh, conversation that's somewhat akin. I, I don't think anybody at this point to your to your point, Mike, can debate the, you know, reflexive effects of passive and, and the self-fulfilling nature of what's happening there. So I don't, I don't think that's really what we're here to debate at this point, right? That was five years ago or four years ago or three years ago's conversation, right? Um, the, the, the conversation I, I'd like to have is, you know, how critical is that you know it's, it's a measure scale if let me paint a scenario we were to see interest rates go to 10 percent in the next three years and we were to see the market you know not just inclusive of the last two years another three years forward so there's a five-year period where markets are flat to down and in real terms down 30 40 percent what? what do you think yeah, so I, unfortunately, I think
3: you are correct in oh, your assertion. Yeah, no, I, let, me, let me actually just, I, I'm not sure if I'm breaking up. Is that me or you?
0: I think it's Jeff.
3: I think that was me. Okay. I apologize. Okay. No, that's fine. You, to my knowledge, you didn't design the telecommunications networks. Um, so the the problem with that analysis, first, I absolutely agree with you. Effectively, what you're talking about is a scenario in which companies that do not need to ca- tap capital markets end up winning, right? Companies that can finance themselves internally. This is David Einhorn's point of you know endogenous return of value. Um, those are the companies that benefit under those conditions. Perversely, you would see in a move to 10%, actually something probably less than what we saw in the move to 5%, because the bonds themselves now have lower duration um, and so the move from 5% to 10% in a 10-year bond doesn't have the same impact as moving from zero to five in terms of principal loss. Perversely, that actually means the only companies that would be really meaningfully affected are the companies that require financing, which is basically small-cap value. Yeah, I, I think It's commercial real estate, small-cap value, et cetera.
2: Yeah, that's clearly true. I think there's another element I put in there, which is time, Right. I think part of why we haven't felt the effects fully of this zero uh, to five move is because everybody is, it was already kind of financed at certain rates for some period of time. Right. It takes yep. time for, for people to come back to market. Um, I'd also argue that there's a much, you know, whether it is fully, uh, you know, it, it's, yes, a lot of businesses will just go out of business because they can't refinance. But plenty of others won't be able to, they may survive, but they may not be able to pursue uh, an overwhelming majority of their business going forward without the better rates, right? So, it really so is, who, is who, who, would,
3: who would be an example of that? I'm, just, uh, I'm actually just trying to understand what you mean.
2: Oh, I mean, it just a uh, simple, uh, you know, in order to invest in uh, the growth of a of, uh, of business, uh, you know, any growth opportunity, you have to have cash to invest in it. And much of that has been you know, uh, invested in at, at at low interest rates for some period of time, five years, ten years. Right. Uh, again, I don't think I need to point out every single specific. This is a pretty general uh, statement here. Um, you know, you cannot uh, you know, invest in, in something that's going to yield 10 percent returns. Right. Uh, if you're borrowing money at 12 percent, right it just doesn't work. And and uh, so and the cash flows that come off of that, obviously, uh, which are critical to funding other things, you know, uh, also go out the window. So the point here is, that it's just not a new idea, right? Higher interest rates um, are going to be a drag on on growth, right? Uh, and, and duration uh, matters time and the compounding of money matters, uh, you know, uh, period. Um, and, and we can Ignore that for some time, as, as long as we finance uh, future uh, cash flow needs, but at some point uh, for everybody, not just, uh, you know, small cap value, uh, financing for everybody matters.
4: So that,
3: that I think is where I unfortunately push back, right? Because um, capital markets don't really matter to Microsoft from a funding standpoint. Right. They they are the company that internally generates far more cash flow. Google is the same thing. Apple, very similar. Right. They have so much extra cash that really the only possible use for it is to to, go out and buy shares in the public market and inflate the value of executive stock compensation, which in turn actually lowers their cost of operations by allowing them to attract and retain the best talent relative to peers that are struggling to service their existing obligations. And I, I think unfortunately, like it just plays out that way. Like, could you enter into a period of underperformance? And and again, I think what you're actually describing, Chem, is, is the David Einhorn framework, right? You want to identify companies that can return 10 to 15 percent without actually relying on the market bidding them up. And I, I think that's hundred percent correct. Uh, yeah, unequivocally.
4: Yeah.
3: Right. So so that can work. Right. But for the majority of companies, particularly in things like the Russell small cap value, they actually do need to tap the capital markets to refinance their debt, to issue additional shares, etc. And so perversely, like the scenario that you're describing is one in which, yes, prices go down, but the relative gain for companies that were already operating under an imputed high cost of capital, right, for Microsoft to reinvest, you know, Uh, It needs to earn a really high return in order to maintain its marginal cost of capital. And it's willing to return capital to shareholders through stock buybacks. But again, I somewhat disparagingly treat as manipulation of their shares. Um, But unquestionably is evidence that they have more uh, cash than they have investment opportunities. On the flip side of that, you got all these companies that can't even dare to tip their toe into refinancing their existing debt obligations. Because the higher coupons that they would be paying will push them into a tax, you know, a, a, an after-tax cost of debt that makes them completely uncompetitive. Yeah, we're, we're, just gonna, we're
2: in complete agreement, by the way, about the winners in this scenario, right? Um, and, but that also assumes a system where none of this is uh, all of this runs unchecked, right? And in the in the world that we live in, that we know, government is going to increasingly become more involved in, right? particularly if we do get kind of the slowdowns and, and the issues uh, with higher rates that we're talking about, uh, you better believe that at some point, uh, they, you know, much like in the 60s and 70s, you're going to have, uh, and, and other periods similarly, you're going to have more government kind of attempting to break up uh, doing more anti-competitive, right? Uh, action, etc. So I, I, I do think, obviously, uh, th- th- those entities that don't need to depend on financial markets to finance their deals are going to be the winners. Uh, companies with high discounted cash flows, right, will generate the money a, and that money will be worth more. Um, uh, but risk premiums should increase. Uh, broad market performance should be poor. Um, and, and in those type of environments, um, eventually, if you just keep accruing more and more power to those uh, bigger entities, uh, my guess is that uh, they that will not go unchecked, particularly in a in a, a period where we're likely to see more government activism. Uh,
3: by, by the way, I actually completely like we really are in complete agreement on all of this. It's just for me a question of will the government actually, one have the courage to step forward in the events that you're talking about, right? Stock markets falling. Now we choose to go after these tech companies that are theoretically creating the growth that the U.S. economy relies on. Harder to imagine, but possible. I think in the aftermath of an event of the sort of thing that we're talking about where there's a severe market correction, we may actually begin to challenge the assumptions that we were making. You know, but on the flip side of that, like Microsoft and Vanguard, for that matter, radically outspend everybody else in terms of lobbying. Right, so what voice is going to get heard? Is it, you know, Joe's Deli shop that is, you know, desperately trying to figure out how to stay open and sell the best Italian sub or is it the company that can afford to buy access to the
2: Senator that puts them in an appropriations bill? Yeah, no, it, that definitely valid, uh, you know, with citizens United, there's, it's a, a bit of a different game than it was 40 years ago in that regard. I would argue though, that and again, this is now, now we're making kind of harder to judge, you know, uh, it's a hard to judge debate, but, uh, you know, in these periods, uh, people get very, very, you know, these are periods of crisis, right? And, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, everybody's looking for a bogeyman man during those times, right? Uh, and the bigger you are, the more of a target you are. But we'll see. Those are things that we, who, who knows, um, but, but points taken. I think, I think we veered off a little bit in the sense that this was more about passive versus um, kind of, uh, the resurgence of active, right? Um, and I think uh, we're more talking about the winners uh, versus the losers. Uh, I do think we tend to agree on the, the tendency for the, those bigger companies to be winners in the absence of political um, intervention.
0: Yeah. I, I, I,
2: I, okay. The, um,
3: the, first of all, anytime you guys want to talk about passive, I'm more than happy to, you can know that. But um the only thing that I would just caveat is is that, you know, in in a game of relative winners and losers, Microsoft's market cap could fall by a trillion and a half dollars, and it doesn't matter, right? Um, if, I'm going to pick a random name, Delta Airlines market cap falls by a trillion and a half dollars, they're bankrupt. Um Obviously, I don't think that it's going to happen in exactly that form, but we do need to be cognizant that these things do not scale in the way we'd like to
2: imagine. You know what I'd be curious, again, just to go back to that original question, Michael, is, you know, imagine, let's imagine that scenario that five years down the road from now, you know, interest rates are significantly higher and the market hasn't performed. Uh, It has been, has performed poorly and people start to move out of beta and really look for aggressively at uh, alternatives, uh, whatever those may be, right? Um, and active management as well, right? I, that, in my opinion, will perform quite better during that period. Um, at what point do you think, I mean, are you in the camp that, that at this point passive is so big that, that, and again, I think we have to define passive too, but just broad market indexing, a uh, beta, right? is so big that it's irreversible at this point and that the effects will continue or or are you of the opinion that the indexing will evolve to in, you know include significantly more alternative alternatives which themselves will become their own reflexive machines
3: i think there's probably a combination of the two um... You know, I, I think the problem is, is that we all, you know, and I'm certainly guilty of this, right? We all want to imagine that we will reform our behavior, right? You know, I will stop drinking, just not tonight. Um, and there is no real alternative that's available to the solution that's proposed. People forget that 401ks and IRAs emerged once corporations recognized that they were incapable of meeting the retirement objectives that they had promised their employees and chose to lobby to shed that responsibility, creating the uh, uh, defined contribution as compared to the defined benefit, right? So we took it out of the hands of professionals who couldn't deliver it and put it in the hands of retail and assume that in their spare time, they're gonna be able to deliver it. And then we turn around and as Eric points out, we give them a free product, we direct them into it, right? It's no different than web 2.0, if you aren't paying for it, if you aren't doing the work, you're the product. That's the great irony of Eric's line of thinking. We've actually created a condition in which the world's greatest marketer, John Bogle, has managed to convince us that the rational thing for everybody to do is the thing that we know is irrational. Like, How crazy is this?
2: Yeah, no, I think we're aligned there. but But I still... I still still don't know how you feel about that scenario.
3: So I think in that scenario that we're at 10% yields, um, Microsoft is probably putting a ton of its cash into 10% yields and enjoying the fact that no competitors could potentially emerge in its server business because they can't obtain financing. Now the flip side to that, as you correctly point out, is maybe the government takes another run at them. Maybe the government actually successfully succeeds in the roughly ten lawsuits that they have against Google. Um, it's possible. I'm skeptical, right? I'm hopeful, but I'm skeptical. All
2: right, let's let's make it more extreme. Let's say interest rates go to twenty percent. I'm just trying to paint a scenario where essentially beta doesn't work for some. Extended. Oh, I, I just want to, be, I want to be very
3: clear. I don't yeah. think beta works under that scenario, right?
2: Correct. So, but what, what is the ironically, of-
3: uh, ironically, that's like what is a higher beta stock, a small cap value one or Microsoft?
2: Uh, it depends. That's-
3: <laughs> well, it the, depends, the, the answer right? is you and I both know. <laughs> yeah, it yeah is, right, right. It's in it's those scenarios.
2: Yeah, in those scenarios, small cap, no doubt. But, but again, in a 20%, let's go. More extreme. Let's go ten years. Let's just imagine. No, I, I mean I, 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 make I, make, I make this point right. all the
3: time. I I make this point all the time, right? Let's forget twenty. Go to a hundred. Right. Right. You can get a hundred percent return every single year by investing in risk-free government bonds. What do you do?
2: What happens? It's not just what do you do. I, I mean that's that's a big enough question. I want to know what you think will happen to passive.
3: I think under those conditions that you would slowly, just as we saw, so I talked about this last year, right? You have sticky allocations in which people are currently looking at their target, or more accurately not looking at their target date fund and simply saying, okay, well, you know, I've done my part. I've actually put my money with no effort and no responsibility into my 401k. By the way, through the beauty of employee matching, I think I'm getting close to hundred percent a year, right? This, uh, what do I care about market performance? There's almost no scenario in which my balance is going to fall until I've been doing this for so long because a new entrant right, is basically making far more on their contributions and on their matching than they are on the actual return in the market, right? So I do this for 10, 15 years. I become accustomed to say, well, what me worry? Who cares? So I don't change my behavior in any meaningful way Somewhere around, I think you're right, by the way, in terms of the numbers. I actually think we actually crossed that threshold at five, believe it or not. People start looking at their portfolios and saying, wait a second, I can accomplish my objectives with no risk. Why, you know, the marginal player starts thinking about it and saying, Why would I own any equities? The institutional player is probably where this happens first.
2: I think it's more I think it's more nuanced than that in the sense, Michael, that that. It's not just, I'm not just talking about the, the move to bonds, right? That's part of it. But it's, it's the alternatives that you can deploy other than, you know, other than equities. And like in the case of the current environment, yes, you can do structured products, for example, right? You can get that, that bond plus some you know, amount or you know, picking winners that actually have good cash flow. Because guess what? The economy continues to outperform right? Because there's government spending that will continue to feed consumption in those, there are going to be big winners in this environment, and there are going to be big losers. It's not like the whole, and the whole market broadly will perform poorly in an environment where you have big winners and big losers. And broadly, the economy, not not the economy, the market performs poorly in real terms over an extended period of time. Why so, in the world that's, would you look at in the big winners? Like, why wouldn't you go it, invest in the big winners and, and, and versus the losers? There's, there's just massive more opportunity uh, in a time where the alternative, which is just beta passive, you know. Totally, by the way, I,
3: I totally agree with you. A stock trading at 30 times earnings with no debt, significant cash on its balance sheet and reasonable growth opportunities will underperform the identical company trading at five times earnings. No question. Right. But that's not the world that we're presented with. For the most part, the companies that are trading at low valuations are companies and that really have actually contributed to that flat market performance, which you correctly highlight. Remember, the Russell 2000 and the Russell 2000 value are actually down sharply over the past couple of years. The Russell 2000 is still in a 20% drawdown, right? So like, you know, 100%, if that were the case, I'd completely agree with you. But the scenario that you're actually describing is one in which cash becomes dearer and dearer and dearer, and the companies that need that cash are the small caps. But, but, right. I,
2: I, I, by it, the way, by the way this is a debate with, we agree on that small cap versus large cap right like no, I'm, but not, that, I'm not saying that if,
3: if i, I mean. need cash if i need cash and i can't get it i go out of business tomorrow the institutional value is gone i go to zero
2: I agree yeah. Yeah. yeah i mean 92 so that's a bad of, return 92% of the stocks in the nasdaq went bankrupt in the tech you know, right so that's like nothing compared to i think you know what what could happen here with the, you know with interest rates going higher so i agree with you on that the, the, my question again is just passive, what happens to this passive machine, which is really a momentum machine, right? It is a momentum machine. It, it, it works, so it begets working more. It, it has but a
3: positive feedback loop is, as all momentum machines do, right. correct? Correct,
2: and, and so we agree, I, I, I couldn't be more, and it's a massive momentum machine. It's very hard to turn because once it gets going, like like how are you gonna turn it? And I'm, my point, again, it's a, it, there is a point where that momentum machine it and I think that's the point I'm trying to make here, right? And, no, I, and, and, and,
3: and, and again, I actually completely agree with you. But here's the great irony. What causes it to turn? And, I, and actually, I would I would argue that as crazy as it sounds, it's already begun to turn. So January is the first month in recorded history in which the Vanguard Total Market Index and its various forms lost assets. Right? I'm sorry, the first January in history, not the first month in history. Right, has never happened before. Why is it happening now? Because as asset values rise and as people move towards retirement and the very first millennials are now hitting 40, which is the age at which their target date funds start reducing their equity allocations, Right, as that begins to happen, you will have less money flowing into the stock market. So what is the source of buying? Well, there's two things that have happened. One is, is that people kind of in an active manager framework woke up and realized how easy the game was, right? We'll just buy the AI companies, just buy the technology companies, forget the energy companies. Yeah, we thought that was the idea, but that was stupid. Uh, maybe we should buy uranium companies. Yeah, that was stupid too. Uh, pot companies, those at least make me relax. Uh, no, they don't. Oh my gosh, they lose money. That was a dumb idea. Now I'm gonna pile into technology. And so I actually think part of what's happening is, is that we are in the end game. We're increasingly discussing Nvidia instead of the S&P. Right, this is the 99, 2000 type feeling. Um, could I be wrong about that? 100%, right? Um, do I think that that part of the narrative is actually in play now? I absolutely agree with that. The pushback that I would make against the underperformance dynamic though, is remember when those flows turn negative, yes, you will have outflows from NVIDIA or Microsoft or anything else that's been you know touched with the AI dynamic, And that's one of the key risks as money has moved into sector funds as compared to, say, the Vanguard total market index. But that was inevitable. It was always going to happen. Um, Now you're suddenly looking at this situation where all these other stocks are being sold alongside those stocks. But Microsoft and Apple and NVIDIA and crazily enough, Uber and even lit like these are nuts when you think about it these companies, Airbnb, right, they're announcing share buybacks. And so that's a source of internal buying that actually reinforces them. And sure, I can go and I can buy console energy as a coal company that's doing the same thing at the very low end. And you're 100% right. By the way, those have been some of the best investments you could make. But that's just like a tiny, tiny little segment of the market, right? I I actually agree with your fundamental principle. And it's exactly what David Einhorn articulated. And so I'm not going to push back in any way, shape, or form against it. But that's not the indices.
2: Anyway, so I'll I, be curious to see, though, if, you know, if at some point here, right, again, which isn't today, tomorrow, and again, you're battling against a clearly incredibly strong flows. It's, it's the market machine at work. But there is a bigger, more important thing in the long run, which is the cost of money. And at some point, Over some time period, if the cost of money goes up enough, um, you know, there will be big winners, there will be big losers and beta won't perform. And if that happens, if that happens, I think that is the one thing that really turns and makes this momentum machine feed upon itself um, and could make things not only bad for passive and make it less popular, but it could could really spell uh, a, a major crisis tied to passive um, and uh, eventually um, kind of a complete wholesale move. in some, you know, when I say passive, I want to be clear, more beta driven investment, right, the 6040 model uh, and doing it with kind of passive vehicles. Uh, I think it could very much um, with time, right, spell the end. I think this could be peak passive narrative and that you look back in like 15 years. And um, wow, like those both those hedge fund investment and those, uh, you know, any, those alternatives, plus, you know, that broad Warren Buffett, you know, uh, approach to investing uh, in some form or another um, dramatically outperforms.
4: Yeah. And,
3: and and again, like, I think that that's probably true. Um, I just, I, I think there's also just an issue of the muscle memory and the institutional frameworks that we need to deal with. Right. So, Um, This is not dissimilar, by the way, to the conversation that I had with the IMF on exactly the financial stability group of the IMF in 2018. Right. So in the after I actually shared my research with them ahead of the events of Armageddon, um, you know, had them on board. They literally looked at my work and came back and said, yeah, we think you're right. And my reaction to that was, oh, my God, Okay, that's fantastic. How can I help? What can we do? And the answer was there's nothing we can do because Vanguard and BlackRock control the regulatory apparatus. And if we try to raise a stink ahead of the event, we're just going to get fired.
2: Yeah, I think I agree with that. There's not much we can do as a country at this point, but we uh, but as investors. Yeah, I,
3: I (laughs) I mean, unfortunately, though, as professional investors, you actually like as individual investors listening in, like I do think there are steps that you can take. Right. You can recognize that the probability is actually pretty darn high Did various forms of high quality fixed income meet many of the objectives that you had aspired to as investors? Um, And a lot of those, uh, particularly, you know, like the narrative is one of, you know, we're going to experience crazy inflation, you know, blah, blah, blah. That can happen, but that is very speculative, right? There is no certainty about anything we're talking about. Um, And even if that's true, things like tips, et cetera, offer relatively attractive real yields that are currently in excess of the nominal yields by a pretty wide margin that you could have picked up a couple of years ago. I I think as people age, they're going to increasingly start to recognize that and and start to take steps to protect themselves by moving in that direction. And just again, to reemphasize, you buy a 10-year bond at a 5% yield, it behaves radically differently going to 10% than that same bond from zero to five right? Uh, the duration is just nowhere near the same. Um, and so like, I, I just think that there's uh, like ev- everything you're saying, Chum, I just agree with like, I, I, like it, it, once you accept the dynamics that you and I have both accepted, like it's really hard not to see the end game of how this stuff plays out. It just becomes a question of, are we going to recognize that and change our behavior as a society to avoid the really adverse outcomes that occur when pension systems fail to deliver?
2: Yeah, no, we, we won't. Uh, it takes it will take that pain. I think we both agree on that as well. I think, unfortunately,
3: uh, that's right. Yeah,
2: yeah, but once that pain does come, I I guess this is my point. There will be a if it's bad enough, there will be a reaction. Well, if, if
3: we keep a democratic and capitalist society, which is an if, I just want to emphasize that. Um, know and and remember like the last time something like this happened you know i immediately lose the argument in a variant of godwin's law when i introduced 1929 but like this is really kind of what we're talking about in this type of scenario um you know you immediately move to a socialist model this is part of the reason why people listen to me talk and they're like holy crap that guy's a communist um i'm not i'm actually just saying like guys we have to make changes if we want to keep anything remotely resembling because of the system that we currently have, because we're effectively just providing extraordinary ammunition for people who want to be anti-capitalist in the next mode.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's already it's already uh, happening. Actually, I would drive, uh, actually argue that it's not, um, you know, it's not as much, it's both effect and cause, right? It's part of what drives the,
0: once inequality I, I gets to the
2: point where it does, uh, the, that populist kind of move is, is both driving it and eventually the final destination.
3: Um, and then, do think it's, I do I think it's really important for people to recognize that those populist moves are not actually caused by a revolt of peasants carrying pitchforks. It's caused by a relatively well-funded elite who happens to want to take power relative to the other elites who are currently in power. Uh, that marshals those resources and and brings that change to the forefront that's how it's that's how it always works right um, and unfortunately, I think there's evidence that that's beginning to rumble across Europe and the United
2: States, and to
3: a lesser extent many parts of asia
2: yeah, no that's always the case, but it is they're able to do it because of the the broad appeal of the populace right hundred um, percent right I mean you know
3: people who are. And I, and I want to be clear for those who are politically lined in the other direction. You know, I voted for Trump because I was a single issue voter on China. Um, I will not vote for Trump again, but I got to be honest with you, I'm not voting for for Joe Biden either. Like, I mean, we're all trapped. We have a series of really bad choices that we're facing. Um, but, you know, the flag, you know, dictatorships come in waving the flag and preaching conservative and independence and everything else. The the the, the left is correct about that. I, I harbor no illusions that Donald Trump is going to try to come in and you know be a dictator for one day and then suddenly embrace uh, all sorts of you know individual reforms the next day. Yeah, to be clear, they're, they're they're
2: two one and the same in the sense that
3: Yeah, you you've got two terrible yeah. choices.
2: And, well, they're just that's they're the just frustrating both, part. They're both just selling they're both selling what people want. And, they're, selling, uh, they're
3: both selling yeah. nostalgia, nostalgia for something that never really existed.
2: Exactly. exactly. But, but we'll get off the political before
0: Yeah, this.
3: exactly. Before, before it falls said. apart.
0: I'm, like, I'm going to interrupt this political conversation. Go. Because um, that- I got I got a chance to talk to you both last year at different times. And um I was curious to see what your opinion was now uh between now and then months ago um, on where the Fed stands. Are you looking at uh you know I know Mike, you were looking at higher interest rates and deflation, which we haven't quite seen yet. And um, Jim, you were looking at Stagflation, I believe, at that point, and higher rates. So, where are you guys now? At yeah,
2: it sounds I, like we
3: were both wrong. Okay. <laughs>
2: well, I don't know. I, I would argue that uh, you know my big my big comment was uh, again, if you look at the 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 sixties and seventies, you know, as as again, I'm just go back there because that's the last time we saw higher secular rates. Um. The the increase in interest rates is not a straight line, right? I mean, interest rates, uh, inflation went from to to seven percent, then it declined to back down to two percent, uh, then it went uh, to thirteen percent, and then it came back down to five and a half. Then it went to twenty percent, right? And so I think it's uh, I think. If you look under the hood, the structural inflation we've been talking about has been very alive and well. We've been talking about that for three years. So, you know, everybody, every time the, you know, we hear transitory, which is now we're in transitory 3.0 at this point, you know, that quickly soon after that, the, you know, the, the, the dialogue changes and, and we're back into inflation again and what just happened the last several months, same thing, right? Hot inflation, hotter employment numbers, um, you know, across the board. And I think it touches on this just critical point that people are missing. Like Inflation is not one, one thing, right? Inflation is not uh, what is happening to the, the to, to cyclical growth. Uh, what, is not, what is happening to the broad demand in the economy? It is that, but it is also this other thing that we have not really cared about for 40 years, which is where in the economy is the money moving? What is the velocity of, of that money? You know, if, I, if we lose a $250,000, you know, programmer job, but we add three $50,000 kind of low end jobs, right, there's a, there's a decline in, in, in output, you know, and spending and output, but unemployment is, you know, you're getting more people employed more of that money that now you're spending $150,000, all $50,000 paid people are pay, spending all their money. That's $150,000 of demand. Whereas that other person might've spent 75, right? So it's just a very different type of model. And when you get into that, you know, demand has a velocity of one. So it pushes pushes prices up with a velocity of one. Um, and so this Broad change in, stru- in the way things are working because of populism, because of the change in what we're doing. Uh, it's driving deglobalization because of protectionism. It's gri- driving up the costs of of goods, not just labor. Um, it, it, across the board, it's making things more inefficient. And at the end of the day, that is what leads to stagflation. That is the core driver of a stagflationary environment where where inflation itself becomes untied, at least a, a, a serious component of it becomes untied to the business cycle. And that is what we're seeing. Like, if you look with a, with a, a, you know, a clean eye with a, a keen eye, and you look very uh, closely, that, that is what we've seen. We've been talking about this for three years. So I would say, we're just gonna see more of what we've seen. That doesn't mean a cyclical downturn in the economy, which we are in the process of seeing, will vanquish inflation, right? It, it, the, it'll in the short term lower inflation but the second the Fed chooses growth over inflation battling that which again there are signs that it's doing even now right inflation will begin to come back and that's what we are starting to see again so that, that would be my view and, and where I've been and I am continue to be there
3: Um. so let's see a couple of quick things one I would actually emphasize that I've Continually called for disinflation, not necessarily deflation, except in certain assets. Uh, effectively the same thing that Jem and I are talking about. Anything that requires refinancing is going to experience a meaningful deflation in terms of a you know decline in its price relative to what it used to be. Like we're seeing that in assets that are in that are refinancing sensitive, things like commercial real estate, multifamily. Um, we're not seeing it in areas like single family because of the supply dynamics. And effectively, people are choosing, and it, this is a very, you know, it's a very interesting phenomenon, right? If I have a mortgage, uh, 30-year mortgage that is at 275 um, and current mortgage rates are at seven, you know, the value of my mortgage in the secondary market has fallen give or take 55%, right? So I've got a mortgage that is 45 cents on the dollar that I am then paying back over time. Um, If I sell my home, I have to pay that back immediately, right? So I would have to pay a dollar for a 45 cent asset. Understandably, not a lot of people want to do that. Um, That itself creates the frictional components that Chem is highlighting. It means that labor that is currently in California can't move to North Dakota. It means that labor that is trapped in Idaho in the aftermath of the pandemic when it moved to remote work and, well, I might as well be in a place where my kids have access to schools. Is suddenly confronted with the reality of well, there's really not many jobs around here that allow me to afford to buy this house, and so if I'm being called back to the office or if I lose that job and need to relocate somewhere else, I'm now really in distress. Um, you know, those components are playing out. This is Peter Atwater's K-shaped economy, and the problem with a K is is that there's only so far down that bottom leg can go before it encounters resistance. Um, And that's where I think we unfortunately are moving towards, right? We've managed to, the the mantra in the aftermath of the global financial crisis for credit markets was extend and pretend, right? We will refinance because interest rates are much lower. We will give you the time to regenerate the profitability and pay this back. We're not going to worry that much about your collateral. Uh, today, that can't be done because we have the opposite phenomenon. Interest rates are so much higher and valuations have fallen. And so if you're trying to refinance your commercial real estate, not only do you need to accept that the coupon payment that you're suddenly going to have to pay, the, the uh, debt servicing costs are so much higher in an environment in which your cash flows have already deteriorated, um, but you're going to need to show up with cash right? Because your loan to value ratio has now moved into distressed territory and the bank is not going to refinance under those terms. um, Or the the private credit issuer is not necessarily going to refinance under those terms. And so, you know, what we have right now is what I would describe as ignore and hope, right? Um, if, If I could just avoid refinancing my debt for another year maybe the fed will have cut by a 200 basis points and then i might be able to do something i think this is part of the great irony right the debate is like will the fed cut by 25 basis points it doesn't matter like that's the great irony everything that we're talking about means that 25 basis points actually perversely ends up being somewhat contractionary with the possible exception of the fact that it causes people to rush out the term premium to go buy longer dated bonds because they're increasingly concerned that the Fed is going to cut to zero again. Um, That's about the only stimulus that I can see from that dynamic. Cutting 25 basis points does not change the refinancing characteristics of CRE. It doesn't change the refinancing characteristics of the vast majority of corporate entities that have been acquired through private equity over the past two decades. It doesn't change the characteristics of many of the companies in the Russell 2000. Um, A lot of them are just bankrupt, right? And, And they're walking dead. And because there's no mechanism to price it, they don't realize it yet.
2: Yeah, I, I completely agree, and I actually have to hop after this comment. But, but I think the core thing that people continue to miss is that higher interest rates over a longer period of time actually are structurally inflationary, and that's not just the the the, the you know residential uh, you know uh, alley there you're talking about or or, or category, but it's true uh, because of uh, that. That means who who borrows the majority of the money wealthy people and more importantly corporations and those entities are the ones that are causing disinflation there's a reason for the last 40 40 years we've had disinflation because we went to secularly lower interest rates that provoked globalization that created technological investment and investment of long-term kind of growth um you know not to mention kind of uh, more mobility as you've mentioned uh, due to cheaper real estate uh, um etc so all of these things um, at the end of the day, are structurally deflationary with lower rates and a, 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 as follows structurally inflationary with higher rates over the long, longer period. In the short term, obviously, uh, cyclically, uh, you know, this slows down economies having having a higher interest rate. So it slows cyclical inflation and exacerbates structural inflation and that's that's what we're experiencing i'll leave on that note michael great seeing you great talking to you thank you thank you for having us tracy um wonderful conversation look forward to doing it again
0: definitely definitely michael I, I, can i just have you for one more minute I, I just wanted to talk about the cra market and bank risk right now um you know because you know we're seeing some signs of stress in europe right now but if we look at like cmbs the market's rather sanguine right now and so is is the cmbs market right or is uh or or, or are they underestimating the risks
2: i mean i'll I'll jump in real quick but i do have to hop uh you know the answer is both right the economy is more more um you know more complicated and more um you know, path dependent and and with multi kind of multiple different effects happening at the same time, right? You can have the beginning of a a commercial real estate crisis uh, that is allowed to kind of muddle through because you're having a cyclical stimulation, you know, in the uh, in the economy from a pivot in the Fed. So these these things can, um, you know, this can go on for some time. Eventually, that commercial real estate will be a tail on not just the banks, but the whole, um, the whole economy, um, but it is, it has a momentum factor and needs, needs other parts of the economy to come along with it. And I'll, I'll leave.
0: Michael, did you have any comments on that?
3: Um, Yeah, I mean, I think Chum and I are saying the same thing, right? I mean, the irony is, is that if you term out your debt and you therefore are not responsive to moves in interest rates and you hike interest rates a lot, right? um, The response of the public officials, the regulatory framework is one of like, oh my gosh, like why isn't this having the the effect that we thought it would? Why have things not slowed down? And the answer is because those who need to refinance and need to pay off their debt choose to take advantage of the option of term financing to avoid doing anything. Meanwhile, those who have cash are able to generate dramatically higher income levels than they have in the past, right? Um, It's just code phrase for giving money to old people, basically. Um, We did that, we exacerbated that through things like the cost of living allowance adjustment that we made at the start of 2023, where we hiked the social security benefit um to social security recipients by almost nine percent right um so not only were they suddenly getting five percent versus zero percent on their cash balances or their um you know formerly uh zero return risky assets they're suddenly getting they're suddenly flush with cash right that creates spending capability drives the economy higher and creates conditions under which everyone kind of looks around like oh look the economy is really really strong meanwhile Um, You're watching the decay happen in other segments. Um, and I just think that part of the phenomenon that then plays out is you go on TV and you try to explain what's happening in the context of many types of the markets making new all-time highs, and you, you naturally are forced to say, oh, the economy is accelerating. It's not accelerating. It's decelerating. Nominal growth continues to fall. The rate of gains in employment continue to fall. Um, unemployment is beginning to rise in a fairly rapid fashion in many regions around the country and in particular um, uh, and in particular in many subgroups Um, and then you have an additional phenomenon which is that every cycle is going to be different based on the incentives that are in place and so in the aftermath of 2020 when unemployment claims and fraud associated with unemployment claims exploded Every state basically tightened up their requirements to qualify for unemployment at the same time that those unemployment benefits, on a inflation-adjusted basis, fell dramatically. You guys are sick of hearing me talk about California, you know, but California—the maximum benefit you can receive for a spell of unemployment is $11,000. That's 25% of the poverty level for a single individual in California. If you're a you know family and one of the individuals becomes unemployed you don't go file for unemployment, you go drive an Uber vehicle. And we see this, we see a rise in part-time, part-time employment for economic reasons that mirrors historical periods of unemployment increases and suggests that the economy is actually quite a bit weaker than the headline data would suggest.
0: That makes sense. <laughs> I don't know if you're still here, Jim, We had—I had like a million DMs, questions, question for you.
4: (laughs) I'm in the car driving somewhere at this point. I might be able to uh, answer one or two here. Uh, I have about six, seven minutes.
0: Well, really, everybody DM me the same thing. Everybody wants to know your thoughts on Nvidia. (laughs) What, what are your thoughts on Nvidia? How relevant is Nvidia to the market? If it doesn't beat estimates. Is it a big catalyst to bring the market down? I think there.
4: Are, I think there are more important things uh, happening. That <laughs> Nvidia. I, I think if Nvidia was happening, uh, like its earnings were coming out three weeks ago, it, it would be very. Uh, it, it, I wouldn't be concerned about it. So it's not about Nvidia. It's about where we sit in terms of other flows and other things that are going on. In particular, um, call decay in the in the Nasdaq has uh, has created over the, you know as we went into. Uh, the expiration week last week uh, created uh, – paired with a little loss of momentum in that period, created a significant negative flows over that, that week and a half period uh, up until last Friday. We were very vocal that would, that would be the case, and that tech should underperform in that window. Now that we're coming out of it, the question is what will the momentum – will it be able to regain its momentum? If it doesn't regain its momentum, and it's not just about going up, it needs more – it needs real continued momentum – why? Because there's it's this ongoing gamma effect versus these vanna and charm effects that I, I talk about. There's so much call open interest where dealers are short call in the, that area of the market and long call elsewhere that the less momentum you have, eventually that leads to selling in those names naturally as time involved compresses. If it can continue its momentum, it creates a gamma effect, and we're beginning to see the loss of momentum and, and decay of those those uh, those calls. We saw a significant amount the last week and a half. If Nvidia does not blow out their earnings and continue to uh, continue on its momentum, you know that is a very poor harbinger for not just Nvidia but broadly tech in general, which is already starting to see some some headwinds as a as a function of that. Um, so I think that's an important um, aspect uh, paired with the fact that the broad market during this period is likely to see less supportive flows broadly, and so uh, there's broad risk as it is. So. Um, those two things, I think, put the Nvidia earnings uh, in a more important spot. It is really important how that will affect the reflexive
0: flows of the market. Otherwise, excellent. Thank you, uh, Mike. Do you have any concerns about this? You know, dump into the tech sector. It's literally the whole market right now. <laughs>
3: Well, I, I, the tweet that you put up, I think, is is almost perfect, right? Um, the chart that you shared. This is exactly what I think people should be focused on. The character has changed, right? People have moved away from the well, you know, uh, let's pretend the S and P is Bitcoin and number go up type framework, uh, and instead, let's you know, let's let's try to find the winners, right? That creates the crowding dynamics that contribute to the extreme price moves that we've seen in some of the tech sector stocks. Um, and I think the risk of that unwinding is is not inconsiderable. Um, you know uh, that's been one of the things that I'm kind of highlighting. Um, I actually think Chem is correct, by the way, though on Nvidia. Uh, you know the the vol is so bid at this point for today's options in Nvidia that the irony is 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 the high probability outcome is effectively no change. Um, you know, that that seems to be the most likely outcome. I don't know how many people have stepped in and I'm looking at the pricing and it actually looks like it's not changed all that much. Um, you know, how many people actually have the courage to sell that straddle right now? Because um, that can change, you know, if, if you sell it enough, it'll change the underlying characteristics as people are forced to scramble to cover. Um, but, you know, I just think it's hysterical Uh, hysterical in in giant air quotes, that the reporting from NVIDIA is now actually engendering a larger vol response in the market than CPI prints or Jerome Powell. Um, It just speaks to how crowded and how scared we've gotten around these dynamics.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's pretty insane. So I know I've kept you guys Way longer than an hour, but if you guys had any final thoughts, if you wanted to mention something that you didn't get a chance to talk about that you think it's important for um, the investors on the stream uh, and, and or, you know, what are you specifically looking at, you know, over the next few months?
3: Um, so, the I mean, the only thing that I would highlight is, is that I think that there was a really interesting opportunity in the aftermath of, Q4 of last year, where we saw that really sharp rally in rates that effectively took rates back to unchanged for the year, you know it was clear that the market got ahead of itself in terms of pricing in cuts, um, expecting seven or eight cuts, I think, at the peak. Um, there were ways that you could you could hedge against that, just using SOFR futures, for example, or even Fed funds futures. Um, that I think a fair number of people have taken advantage of now we're kind of back into that three cut area. Um, and, and I, I would be hard pressed. Like I, I look at the inflation number that just came through and, and would just emphasize that things like using core takes on new meaning um, when you have the disruption in housing that we have, that indices, the the design of owner's equivalent rent and rent of shelter, that smoothing mechanism that's included into the benchmarks, is not designed to deal with the type of disruption that we've had. The Cleveland New Tenant Rent Index, uh, which monitors the marginal change effectively what the new renter is paying, has fallen even more than it fell during the global financial crisis. Uh, we continue to see indications that we're kind of stopping and starting as people try to rebuild inventories um, and think about the the dynamics of their order book after 18 months in contraction in the ISM manufacturing. We're now starting to see that spread to uh, the services area, um, as well as indications that, you know, Uh, even a modest reversal in interest rates is enough to cause things like the housing market to slow down significantly, et cetera. We've started to see inventory build there. I know that's uncomfortable for people to hear. They don't want to deal with that, et cetera. That's fine. It is what it is. Um, And the last part is is just remember that when you have BLS reporting of things like inflation and we focus on things like core, a huge chunk of what is actually playing through there is the dynamic of how they treat utilities. And so this is one of these things that like anyone who's been doing this for a very long time remembers it, but you also forget it because you don't have to deal with it on a regular basis. Um, The way the BLS calculates rents is if your rent is inclusive of your utilities, which is particularly true in the multifamily space. um, If the cost of utilities, in other words, in particular, the cost of natural gas falls perversely that is interpreted by the BLS as well you're no longer receiving as much benefit from the utilities being included, therefore your rent went up. And that actually is responsible for a big chunk of the increase in the owner's equivalent rent that we've seen as natural gas prices have collapsed. Um, It's leading to a huge divergence between metrics like Zillow and the private sector that don't make those adjustments. And what we're seeing coming out of the BLS um, and so perversely, I actually think that this was a, just a huge head fake on the inflationary front. Could be wrong. And I, by the way, I just want to con- concede. Like, I agree with Chem, If we continue to engage in all sorts of stupid behavior and frictional behavior, which seems likely that, yes, those are inflationary over the very long run. Um, but on the flip side of it, you know, Japan made tons of bad policy choices along those way, along those lines um and experience deflation because of population pressures and i think that's more broadly true for the developed world than we want to acknowledge
4: as much as i'd like to respond to that i have to go but that was uh you know a wonderful conversation guys thank you for having me and look forward to kind of doing it again and following up
3: it's great talking to you (laughs)
0: Thank you guys very much for uh, spending your time with us. We really do appreciate it. Definitely going to have you all back again, hopefully when Eric can be on for a little bit longer. Um, And Thank you to everybody that was listening in today. And I will see you next Wednesday. Uh, Have a great rest of your day, everyone. And again, thank you, Michael and Jim.